Welcome to the Nursing Home 411 podcast. I'm your host, Haley Cronquist, and I'm going to start this episode with an excerpt from a book of stories pieced together and edited by our upcoming guest, nursing home advocate, Mary Nichols. The book is called Protecting Them to Death, The Impact of Isolation in Long-Term Care. It contains stories from every state about the effects of lockdown on long-term care residents and their loved ones. The following is a story from a family member in Illinois. The family member named Lucille wrote, My husband had Alzheimer's and I spent time with him every day at his memory care facility until March of 2020. I shaved his stubble, cut his hair, cleaned his glasses, brushed his dentures, and monitored his health. I tried window visits and virtual visits, but he just wanted to know why I didn't come into his room and was not part of his life like I had been for 32 years. Outside visits six feet apart in the summer heat were difficult, and his mental and physical health declined. Then he tested positive for COVID-19 in October and was hospitalized. He returned to his facility on hospice care, and when he was no longer responsive, after eight months and 24 days, I was finally allowed to enter the facility and comfort him with physical touch until he died three days later. After a brief break, we'll speak with Mary Nichols, who helped collect the stories from family members for this book. Here's our music by Silverman Sound Studios. Thank you, Mary, for coming on to the Nursing Home 411 podcast today. Thanks for having me. I never tire of talking about this. <laughs> Absolutely. So you have been an incredible advocate for nursing home residents throughout the pandemic. And I know that you also have a story in this book about your experience with your mom. So can you tell us a little bit about your personal experience with nursing home care and why you felt so compelled to get involved and create this book and a little bit about the process of putting it together? Well, this book was actually a springboard kind of of a book that we did in Texas. We did a book in Texas called Saving Them to Death, which was very successful in getting our legislators' attention and sharing with them what they don't know, which is the real impact of isolation on residents in long-term care facilities, because otherwise they're not hearing from families, they're only hearing from providers. So we did this book in Texas and it did help us um, communicate with our legislators, help them understand what families and residents were dealing with. And so when a group of leaders from uh, various state visitation and advocacy groups were invited to a panel and a press conference in DC, and then we met over dinner, we kind of floated the idea of doing a, a copy of this book at a national level and doing state-by-state -state stories and seeing if we could not garner some support for HR 3733 in Washington, DC by sharing stories from each and every state and helping um, our legislators take ownership of what's taking place in the facilities in their own state. Um, but it basically just started with March 12, 2020, when I left my mother's nursing home and said, see you tomorrow. And tomorrow didn't come for 202 days. And that was only after the whole Caregivers for Compromise and Texas Caregivers for Compromise movement. Um, and we, did a lot of advocacy work and were able to get some emergency visitation guidelines put in place. 
And can you tell me a little bit more about uh, how that uh, how that went in Texas, how you guys went about um, getting that put in place? Uh, Texas, <laughs> we hit the ground running. We The group started on July 12th. Mary Daniel in Florida started Caregivers for Compromised uh, July the 9th. She encouraged states to start individual groups. So um, I, I started Texas Caregivers for Compromised July the 12th, and we hit the ground running. We started with a rally um, August the 8th um, in at the Capitol. But even before that, we were contacting legislators, contacting news media, already having um, interviews with media outlets. And um, what we did was we developed an essential caregiver proposal and we sent that to every member of our health and human services committee and um, our Senate committee on health and human services. So our house, house human services committee and our Senate committee both got those books. That was about 21 people sent that to the governor, sent it to our health and human services commission. Um, we were doing that every single week, printing that every week, mailing that every week. I had started an online petition in June and we started circulating that petition in July, making sure we were getting a lot of signatures. And by the time we were done with that, we had over 25,000 Texas signatures and another 1,500 or so non-Texas signatures. These were people who actually had family members in Texas uh, that wanted to sign the petition. But our book was one of our next projects. We did these um, big yellow signs that say isolation kills two. And at the bottom of each sign was the name of a person either living in long-term care or who had died in long-term care. And we took these 300 signs and we just circulated them through the state of Texas. They would be on one piece of property for a few days. And then that sign host would meet up with the next sign host. They would pass off the signs. Then that next sign host would put them on their property and then they'd pass them off to the next one. And we cycled that through the state of Texas. We kind of made a, a rotation around the state and made sure that our news media knew about that. So we got lots of news coverage of our, our traveling signs. Once the book came out, we mailed that to all of our members of our uh, House of Representatives and our senators. We just kept kept plugging away. And um, on on September the 17th, the, the mayor, uh, the governor announced that they would do essential caregivers in emergency guidelines but we wanted this in statute form. We wanted it to be law. So we did have the chair of our House Human Services Committee and the chair of our Senate Committee on Health and Human Services that worked with our group to develop a bill that they filed in December. And um, those went to our legislature as soon as that they were convened in January. Um, they were adopted uh, in May and took effect September 1 of 2021 but that was not good enough either. <laughs> we wanted some permanent change. And so they filed a resolution calling for a constitutional amendment. And that amendment makes it a constitutional right for every resident in long-term care in Texas to have an essential caregiver whom cannot be denied in-person visitation. So we've gotten a lot of work done in Texas and we really wanna see that same kind of momentum mimicked in the other states because we feel like every person living in long-term care has a right to in-person visitation. So I haven't seen the Texas book, but I've seen the national book and it is, it's really incredible. And, you know, all of the work that you, that you did in Texas was obviously a huge feat. I mean, Texas itself is, is a huge state. So how did you, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So how did you, how did you go about, um, 
creating this national book. I mean, that's it's so there are so many incredible stories throughout the book. And it's not just one story from each day. I mean, some states have have several stories. So how did you go about that? Well, we had a collaboration of um, visitation advocacy leaders um, and we divided those states up among each one of them. I think each of us had four or five states and it was that leader's responsibility to gather stories from that state, uh, either through the Caregivers for Compromise group in that state or uh, uh, like New York has voices for seniors and there's some states that have uh, multiple advocacy groups for long-term care visitation. So, and um, then we had, we had a couple of team members assigned to collect those stories and put those in a spreadsheet by state, um, collect photographs, put those in a um, Google Doc spreadsheet by state. And then um, I took my camper out to Lake Hawkins in East Texas and sat there for seven days and just collated these stories, edited them, compiled them in book form. And then we had three editors that um, I was circulating these back and forth to. It was a team effort. We had a lot of, um, each team member had a job and we all had to do our job or the book wouldn't have come together. But we first put the idea out around that dinner table on July the 1st. By September 1st, that book was in the printer's hands. So within 60 days, we had pulled it together. That's really, really incredible. So I know that you mentioned that the Texas book came first. So when you originally decided to put the Texas book together, what was what was the goal? What were you hoping would be the outcome of that book? The goal, just like it is for the national book, is to tell legislators what they don't know. They just don't know what they don't know. And unless we show them and we tell them the impact of isolation on long-term care residents, um, they're just not going to know it because the only input they're going to get is from those provider groups and those lobbyists that they have regular communication with. And they don't have that kind of communication at this level. And in our case, our legislature was not in session. So when we contacted our legislators, they'd say, gee, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do right now. We don't have a legislature in session, but we'll look at this when session convenes. Well, our residents just didn't have that kind of time. And even if they did, we couldn't wait until the session convened to start working. So we started working right away and we started hammering right away, contacting our legislators. And it was really funny with the, the Texas situation that that online petition, we were mailing a copy of that petition every week to our governor and to our Texas Health and Human Services Executive Commissioner. And that, that became a very big book after, you know, 5,000 names. And then in another week, it was 8,000 names. And another week, it was 10,000 names. So every week, it got bigger. And at one point, we got a letter from the governor saying, eh, we got your petition. We appreciate it. But, you know, this really needs to go to Texas Health and Human Services. It wasn't the governor himself. It was someone in his office. But um, so... I don't know, it felt kind of like a cease and desist letter. Don't send us any more copies of this petition. So we wound up sending him two copies of the petition every week. And so we did that until we actually got those emergency guidelines in place. The goal here is to let them know what they don't know, because if we don't tell them who will, um, they're only going to hear the happy fuzzy side, the smiling people at the closed windows, the, the people you know, enjoying their virtual meetings, but that was not the truth. This was, this was like Wizard of Oz, you know, we, we, we needed to expose the person behind the curtain and that person behind the curtain was suffering and suffering enormously because a person with dementia, a person with Alzheimer's, 
a young adult or a child with an intellectual disability does not understand a virtual visit, does not understand that closed window. And we needed to make sure that our legislators understood that they don't understand those alternative kinds of visitation. Yeah, that's exactly true. I mean, as, as from the, the excerpts that I read at the beginning of this podcast, it's, you know, a man doesn't, he, he has Alzheimer's, he doesn't understand why his wife of, you know, who's he's been with for 32 years isn't coming into his room. And it, you know, it makes sense. It's confusing. And, you know, the, the virtual visits with the iPads and stuff, it's like, you know, a lot of people in, in long-term care facilities are older. They're not used to, you know, all of this technology. It's not, it's not comforting. You know, everyone, everyone knows the value of a hug. Um, and I think it's, um, it's just so important. So just well, a lot going, of it's not just, you know, hug and emotional care. And I'm sorry to interrupt you, but a lot of this is actual, uh, we're the people, and it's in that excerpt that you read, we're the ones coming in, the family are the ones coming in, we're replacing the hearing aid batteries, we're cleaning the dentures, we're trimming the nose hairs, we're clipping the nails, we're washing the gunk underneath their fingers, we're moisturizing their faces, we're putting chapstick on their lips, we're cleaning their feet, we're scraping their heels of dead skin, we're doing all these things that this enormously short-staffed um, industry does not have the time to do. They barely have time anymore to, to meet the, the basic needs of long-term care residents. They're, they're doing good to get them medicated and get them bathed and get their um, basic needs met. They don't always have this kind of time and they, they, didn't, they didn't anyway. We had a historic staffing shortage prior to the shutdown on March 12 of 2020. Now it is, it is beyond historic. The staffing shortage is, is so critical. So uh, family members, essential caregivers, whoever it is that that resident depends on, that person needs to be able to get in there and meet the needs of that resident. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And that's a, a great segue in kind of to, uh, to my next point about HR 3733. Federal law gives nursing home residents the right to immediate access to visitors 24 seven. Uh, um, and as we are keenly aware of now, family members and, and other loved ones are critical, like you said, in providing additional care and support of nursing home residents. Uh, but unfortunately, when the public health emergency was announced in 2020, families were completely barred um, from facilities and, and residents were not only isolated from their families, but from other residents as well. They were isolated to their rooms, um, you know, as, to keep them safe. But I don't think, you know, at that point in time, we obviously didn't realize what the impact of this isolation would be. And it's been absolutely devastating. Um, and even after the visitation ban was lifted, you know, we as advocates, we still hear from family members every day who are still struggling to, to be granted visitation access. And it's, it's uh, just extremely frustrating, but, you know, thankfully that there are family groups um, like you, you know, with your essential um, caregivers groups, who successfully supported these, these laws uh, to recognize the right of essential caregivers to be present, whether or not there is an ongoing public emergency. So can you tell us a little bit about um, where HR 3733 is now and what the status is? Well, I actually have genuine concern about HR 3733 right now. I'm worried that it's languishing in committee. Um, I'm concerned that our um, legislators in D.C. feel like this is a state's issue and that it is up to states to resolve it. Uh, and um, 
I feel like maybe Texas is at fault for some of that because we did resolve it um, so tidily, but that's not the case in the other 49 states. The other 49 states, they either have no statute at all and they're under CMS guidelines, which means the only facility that has any type of oversight is a nursing facility, or that state has said all facilities must follow CMS guidance, um, which leaves the state health authority responsible for enforcing that. Or they do have a statute in place and that statute is either an essential caregiver statute or one of these no patient left alone statutes, which really is not essential caregiver at all. What it basically does, everyone I've seen so far, Florida might be the exception. They have a bill going through right now that could be the exception to this, but so far every no patient left alone bill that has been adopted, all it does is adopt compassionate care guidelines from CMS, um, which is end of life and emergency type visitation uh, when a resident is just not able to adapt for whatever reason or is suffering from failure to thrive. And the only way that helps the other long-term care facilities is that it forces assisted living facilities to also abide by those same guidelines. So they're really not helpful. Um, the statutes we've seen, there are some good ones, there are some bad ones, um, but the only one I've seen that does not grant nursing facilities and assisted living facilities the ability to still shut down visitation um, unilaterally is in Texas. Um, the only one I've seen that does not still um, hand over resident rights to the long-term care facility is in Texas. So um, I would argue vehemently that it is not a state's issue because there's unequal application of a federal riot taking place in these 49 states. Well, 50, because it's unequal in Texas. There's one thing going on in Texas and right next door in Louisiana, there are no regulations at all. They rely wholly and completely on CMS. Uh, north of us in Oklahoma, they have uh, no patient left alone bill in place, um, totally different. So all you gotta do is cross a state line and it's totally unequal application of a federal right that was adopted by our government in 1987. And that's that right to 24 seven visitation. So I, it is definitely a federal issue, but I'm concerned that I've not seen any movement on HR 3733 because I think our legislators think it's up to the states and there's just so many things going on that are so volatile and, and, and attract so much news. This one just doesn't attract that much news. It's just not a sexy topic that makes everybody wanna jump on it. Yeah, we talk with other advocacy groups often about how just nursing home issues. I mean, that's that's the thing. They're not sexy. You know, it's not something that that people want to to really focus on. It's not a, a hot topic, you know, but it's it's so it's so important. That's why we're so grateful for for you and other advocates who are really doing so much work to keep, you know, to keep the pressure on legislators to to keep this going. And, you know, you mentioned just before compassionate care visits. And throughout the pandemic, you know, these compassionate care visits were something that were supposed to be granted to family members who, when someone was, you know, close to dying. And we heard so many stories and there are so many stories in the book about how people still were not granted uh, visitation access at that time. And it's just, it's absolutely heartbreaking to know how many residents um, suffered and, and died alone um, because, you know, facilities were, had the discretion to, to turn people away. 
it, it's hard for people to understand this, but there are facilities in this country right now that still deny compassionate care visits, that still deny end-of-life visits. There are facilities in this country right now that still require closed window visits and will not allow you in the facility depending on, you know, whether or not they feel like it's safe for you to come in or not. And, you know, the bottom line here is the lockdown did not work. It didn't keep COVID out. So I'm, I'm confused as to why we're still clinging to this narrative that families are the disease bringing this, the, coming into facilities. Unlike the staff who we have verified have brought this disease in, uh, families have a vested interest in keeping their loved ones safe. The staff, they have got to come to work. Um, they do not have the kinds of benefits that they need to have in order to allow them to stay home. So when they have to um, just kind of roll the dice, I have a fever, should I go to work? Should I stay home? Well, I've got bills to pay and I've got kids I have to feed. I'm gonna go ahead and go to work. And that brings the disease in and that's what is endangering our loved ones. So there's a bigger issue here and it's got to be addressed and that is taking care of our staff. I was at my mother's facility one day and a vendor with crates of potato chips and things to fill the vending machine was allowed in the facility. He was essential, but I was not. My mother was dying of end-stage Alzheimer's, but he was essential. Filling the vending machine was essential, but me sitting at my mother's side, holding her hand, reading to her and talking to her was not. Yeah, it's, it's such a hard thing to, to process that information. It, it's just not right. And I'm, you know, I'm sorry that you had to go through that. And, you know, I'm not sorry I had to go through it. I'm not, I, I think that, um, I think it's what it took to motivate me and make me do this. Had my, had my mother died two months earlier when I was in the backyard screaming at God, why is she still suffering? I would have never been involved in, in this advocacy work. I'd have never started Texas Caregivers for Compromise. Somebody would have, but it would have looked different than it does today. So I don't regret this. I believe my mother's suffering had a purpose and I believe um, that she would be honored that her suffering helps so many people. We have over 120,000 people living in long-term care in Texas. And I think everything that my mother went through has a value. I was not a, a woman out to change the world. You know, I just wanted to go in and see my mother um, and it wasn't happening. So this is the result. I'm actually kind of thankful for the pain in a weird way. It's a very positive and, and powerful way to look at this, um, at this whole experience. And again, we, uh, we as advocates so appreciate you um, and all the work that you've done and you know, continue to do. It's, it's amazing to see um, all of these advocates who have gone through such loss during the pandemic and are still pushing so hard. Um, and we just, we couldn't be more, more grateful for you. So we'd like to close out our podcasts with recommendations from our guests. So one, um, two recommendations, one uh, long-term care related, um, a book, a movie, a podcast, you know, really anything. Um, and then the second can just be any recommendation that you want. Um, there's an author named Jenny Lawson that has um, some books out. Her newest one is called Broken in the Best Possible Way. 
And um, that's kind of what I was just talking about, but she's funny. She um, uses her own experiences in a very comical way um, to make some poignant points. She has two other books. One of them is called Curiously Happy. And her first book was called Let's Pretend This Never Happened. Um, so, but the, her newest one is called Broken in the Best Possible Way. And I would highly recommend reading it. It's, it's not a heavy read. It's not a dark read. Um, it's a very uplifting read, a very funny read. And it's, it's worth it. Um, Long-term care related, there's a book called Still Alice by Lisa Genova. Um, and it's actually made a movie out of that too. Um, and this is about a, a woman experiencing Alzheimer's and what that is like for her. So that that would be that would be a long-term care related book. I would also recommend always listening to very uplifting music, keeping your attitude as positive as possible. My go-to song is Dreams by Van Halen. <laughs> that one fires me up every time. Um, and then there's a beautiful, beautiful song. Um, it was composed by an Irish composer um, named Patrick Cassidy. It's called Vita Cormune, and this was written for the sequel to Silence of the Lambs, Hannibal. And this is just the most angelic, beautiful music I've ever heard. And um, Vita Cormune means see my heart. And this is a beautiful, very positive, uplifting thing to listen to. So I would say listen to that or listen to Dreams by Van Halen. But um, whatever you have to do to stay mentally healthy, read positive, uplifting books, um, listen to positive, uplifting music. Those would be my recommendations. Those are all excellent recommendations. I am adding all of those to my reading list. Um, I could use a, a pick-me-up. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> so thank you um, again so much for joining the Nursing Home 411 podcast. And, and again, we just, we really thank you for your advocacy.